Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 412 of the podcast. It's May 5th, 2021. Our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Burns. Um, you'll learn more about him in just a second. If you want to find show notes and more uh, link to his book and articles and things that we talk about today, you can go to leanblog.org slash 412. Also invite you to follow uh, as they're now calling it in the different podcast apps, we used to say subscribe. Please follow, rate, and review. And if you like the episode or if you like the podcast, please share it with a friend. Share it on social media. That really helps a lot. Um, so as always, thanks for listening. Our guest today is Jonathan Burns. He is a senior lecturer at MIT, where he's taught about supply chain management and other topics at the graduate level and in executive programs for over 30 years. He has written over 200 books, articles, cases, notes, and expert submissions. And his latest book is available now. It's co-authored with Joe Wass. It's called Choose Your Customer, How to Compete Against the Digital Giants and Thrive. So, um, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us here today. How are you? My, it's my pleasure. I'm doing fine. Thank you. Um, I actually look out the window and I don't see snow. So, you know, I guess it's a good sign here in New England. But uh, I want to thank you very much for inviting me on. It's a very opportune time because both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, I mean, this morning ran articles about um, supply chain disruptions and how companies are building just in case inventories, also called hoarding, uh, um, against that key eventualities. Uh, so it should be a very interesting discussion. And again, um, I'm really very grateful for the uh, terrific public service that you provide here. And I'm really privileged to be able to be part of it today. Thank you. Yeah, well, sure thing. And we also, we previously had a chance to record an episode on uh, the My Favorite Mistake podcast. So um, I'll encourage people um, to check that out. That's going to be available soon um, as well. So before we dive into, you know, I think this really um, you know, timely and interesting supply chain discussion, let me tell you a little bit more um, about our guest. He's uh, the chairman and founder of a company called Profit Isle. Uh, it's an innovative profit analytics and profit accelerator SaaS software company or software as a service uh, model company. And he's president of Jonathan Burns and Company, a focused consulting company that he founded in 1976. So Dr. Burns earned uh, his DBA from Harvard University in 1980 and an MBA from Columbia University in 1974. And um, when, when I was uh, studying at MIT Sloan, uh, I didn't get a chance to take um, a class with you, Jonathan, um, uh, but uh, you, I know you're friends with many of the professors I had. Um, I wonder, you know, I took so many operations and supply chain classes. I wonder, I wonder why we didn't cross paths when I was there. Um, I'm embarrassed to say, I think at that time I was teaching at eight in the morning. <laughs> I don't know if that had anything. It's embarrassing that I wouldn't want to take an 8 a.m. class. <laughs> well, that happens with the other students. But when I went to 10 o'clock, uh, the class size doubled. 
Uh, well, but I, I, was, I was very, very, very close to um, Don Rosenfield. You know, he was one of my very closest friends socially. You know, we used to vacation together. He tragically passed away recently. I know he was ahead of the program that you were in, Mark. Um, so I guess at MIT, uh, it's really very much a community. And there's so many wonderful courses that sometimes students find their way over to me and sometimes they find their way over to Steve Graves or Charlie Fine or any number of other you know, really, really wonderful authorities. So uh, I'll catch you on your next round. Yeah, well, may I can come back for some uh, executive education or even just having this discussion. Um, I'm happy to continue um, my education. And um, when you talk about all of the, you know, the great teachers at MIT, Steve Spear comes to mind also. He's been a guest. Yeah, he was a DBA also. Yeah. Another Harvard guy. Yeah. You know, on the 25th anniversary of uh, my teaching at MIT, <clears throat> um, there was a people gave me a lunch and a couple of people were speakers. Don Rosenfield was one of the speakers. Mm -hmm. And he said that when I first went over to MIT, I taught with the case method as I still do. And people said, you know, oh, he's from Harvard. That's why he does that. <laughs> this HBS where I went to school uses the case method. And uh, he said, after 25 years of teaching here, we like to think that he's from MIT. Oh, I wear I wear it as a as a badge of honor, well, and actually, mm -hmm. I, I actually married into the family. My wife is an MIT alumna. Mm -hmm. Well, there's opportunities to combine the best of uh, of both worlds and 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 both teaching methods from uh, from from the school. Is it? I guess it would be up the river, just slightly up the Charles. Up the river, yes, that's right. Up the river, no, no like pun intended. Yeah. And uh, or or two two train stops away on uh, via the T on the red line. Exactly. Well, the the one article and and I'll make sure um, that I link to this in the show notes for everybody um, is actually an article from May 2020, and I'll I'll also link to the Wall Street Journal article that um, Jonathan mentioned that I did have a chance to read. I did not yet see the New York Times article, but I'll find those and link to those. But you know, our main topic today is this article titled How to Manage Your Supply Chain Shockwaves. Um, this was published in May of 2020. So I, I guess to, to tee you up and share a little bit, uh, you, you know, if you can talk about the, the premise of the article, but now that it's been a year, I'd be curious to hear your reflections on how things played out in terms of supply chain shockwaves, um, Related to the pandemic or coming out of the pandemic, as as maybe some of this effect has been delayed, what what would you say? Well, I, I think that the underlying principle, if you really sort of scrape all the dirt off and get down to the bedrock, is that there's a tension between having a lean supply chain, uh, which is very cost efficient because product flows through it, presumably with very little inventory, um, which of course would compress cycle time and minimize your cost. You know, the problem that people don't recognize because they don't encounter it very often is that 
um, a lean supply chain cannot tolerate much variance. So the reason that you have inventory, <clears throat> I have to apologize for the allergies. The reason that, that we have inventory in any supply chain, because we have a variance in supply and a variance in demand. And, um, you know, with that certain amount of variance, inventory allows us to not run out of stock and therefore incur the costs of having people, you know, go to the shelf and be disappointed and the rest of it. And what I teach in my class is that you have two choices. You know, you can optimize the inventory using mathematical techniques. And those have been, you know, very well thought out over the years. Or you can manage the variance, um, which people haven't really thought about. So when supply chain courses, supply so-called supply chain 101, they teach people inventory models. And there are a number of people still work on those. But they date back to the time before there were computers and telecommunications and all the sorts of things that we have at our disposal today. So the thought of, of not necessarily optimizing to assuming the variance in supply and assuming the variance in demand, that that assumption that that's how you manage a channel is no longer true. So if you have a refinery producing, I teach a case on uh, filling a diesel oil tank for the Union Pacific Railroad. And, you know, what's outside of the cases, you can just call the refinery and say, we don't have a lot of trains, don't send another car. Or you can call the train, you know, with your wireless, or get the cell phone of the engineer and say, you know, why don't you, you know, if you really need it, we got a lot of product, why don't you stop here? So um, I think that that underlies it now. Um, for most of, a period of time, historically, uh, the variance in supply and demand has been quite stable, really fairly stable. And that's either because of the inherent variance in whatever is causing demand or supply, you know, and the changes are seasonal or you know, things that are somewhat predictable. So you can have variance, you can predict it, that's okay because you can kind of build against inventory against it. But um, every once in a while, you have a major disruption that lasts longer than one or two order cycles. And there are a variety of reasons for that. I think that probably the most common one is the support strike. So back in uh, the late 1990s, uh, there was a big strike in the port of Long Beach on the West Coast. And when you shut down that port, all of a sudden it was like putting a, a stopper on a tap. And, you know, the variance in supply, you know, went through the roof because there wasn't any. And lean supply chains are tuned so that you don't have a lot of padding and cushion against that. What that means is that that shutoff of Inbound product, input product, meant that the output product, what you're producing and selling, um, also stopped. And that's a disaster. 
because companies, you know, need to have stable earnings. They need to uh, have customers who are happy. And so when that sort of thing happens, it disrupts the entire system. So there are a couple of ways that we could deal with it. Um, we could either go to all our customers and say, we'll do the best we can. Um, and the salespeople say to each of their customers, we'll do the best we can. And then they go to the warehouse and they try to find somebody who'll do them a favor. And it's basically a first come, first serve situation. And that makes everybody unhappy because the salespeople are not making promises, but they're saying, I think I can help you, you know, because people don't like to say no, particularly in sales. And so, you know, when they can't produce the product, the customer has been half expecting it. Don't worry, our salesperson will come through. And everybody winds up angry. The salespeople are frustrated. So that's first come, first served is typically the way that companies do it. And they don't have to do this very often, once every few years or more. Um, so they don't really, they haven't really ever created processes to handle this. Um, when the pandemic started, this was a real issue because this wasn't just a port strike that was gonna be resolved in a week or a month. Mm -hmm. You know, or the snowstorm in Texas with resins and, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But this was a very long-term event and companies didn't have a way to think through how to deal with that. So they had these lean supply chains without a lot of just-in-case inventory and they had to figure out what to do. What we wrote about in the article with, with my former student, John Ross, um, during the Long Beach port strike, he was senior vice president of supply chain at Staples. Mm -hmm. And um, he had to try to figure out what was going on and what to do about it. So in that case, you, you know, you have two choices. Either it's a scramble, first come, first serve, which doesn't work for anybody. Or you go back and you say, well, I have different sorts of customers. And then you get into a question of how you calculate customer profitability, you know, but assuming that you can do that and we can do that in profit aisle through our transaction-based P&Ls, we can really nail it. Mm -hmm. You then say, okay, I know who my profit peaks are. Those are a lot of revenues and a lot of profits. And I know who my profit drains are. They're big customers where I'm losing money. And I know who my profit deserts are. They're the little customers, you know, that aren't really doing much at all. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a little bit of money here, maybe a little loss there. And, and you can sort of say, well, there are a couple of things I can do. Number one, I better understand and make sure my top management team understands that this is something different. Mm -hmm. And we can't just deal with it the way that we've typically dealt with it and yelling at the warehouse isn't going to help. Yeah. So um, that's number one. Number two is to look at your um, replenishment system. And most replenishment systems, I'm um, sad to say, 
are set when you buy it. The parameters, they have different parameters. They set them and they kind of run with what they have. And, and you mean software systems? Software systems. Yeah, replenish. Yeah, I sold this much. I need this much and so on and so forth. And um, but, mo- but many of the better, the best ones have the ability to put gates on how much you ship or how much is ordered. Because it's not only an issue for your shipping out, to, you know, if you're in the middle as a distributor, let's say, you're shipping out to the retailer or the customer and you're ordering from the supplier. So some of the best systems have gates where you can say, wait a minute, you know, they ordered three times their historical demand. We're only going to allow them one times historical demand or modified historical demand. Right. So this is allocating that limited supply. Well, it's moving in that direction. So the, the first question is, can you do it? And then next is, what do you want to do? So the can you do it piece um, in these companies, you know, that do have these very good systems, most of them have never used those parameters. They never needed to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the first thing is to get your crackerjack IT people, you know, crawling over the system and saying, what can we do with it? And then if you do have the ability, then you go back to your three categories, peaks, grains, and deserts. And you can do, you know, then you make a policy decision. You can go to your peaks and say, we can give you 100% of your historical demand adjusted for where you are now. But after that, we're not going to let you hoard. And a lot of what's going on now is hoarding. That was a toilet paper issue, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's going on now with some commodities. Certainly in the auto industry, it's going on. You know, the issue in the auto industry and some and some of the others is that they have trouble getting a hold of some critical pieces like semiconductors and others. And then the order goes down from the top saying, you know, hoard everything. We're never going to let that happen again. Right. And that lasts, you know, until the first price war. And then they're back and, you know, come on, let's be lean again. You know, and hope that we never have a disruption. But the right thing to do is to they give 100% to your profit peaks. Um, and then for your profit drains, you can give them, say, 75% of their historical demand. And then, you know, then the question comes up, won't they be angry at me? Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm not giving them what they want. And the answer is that in customer service, um, there's good news, bad news, and no news. Mm-hmm. If good news means, yeah, we give you what you want. Bad news means, I'm sorry, you know, there's no product there. We will promise you 75% of your historical demand. Don't order more because we won't give it to you. And our machine will cancel your orders. <laughs> so that's why you need that gating function in the system. Because there are more customers in orders than you've got clerks with the garter band and a you know the little hat you know canceling the orders in red ink the quill pants you can't do it so your computer does that and they can live with that they'll find an alternative source or they'll change their production and they'll say you know well yeah we have to live you know we'll, we'll live with it mm-hmm. the no news is you know i think i can get it for you 
oh, great, you know, we promise it to our customers. We're ordering all the complimentary products and it's sitting here. Where's the stuff you told me I'd get? And salesperson says, I said, I try to get it. Remember, try and unfortunately couldn't do it. And that's the worst of all worlds. So for your profit drain customers, those are big customers losing money. Nine times out of 10, the problem is not a below market price. Nine times out of 10, it's in the cost to serve. Either they're ordering five times a week when they should be ordering twice, or they have the wrong mix of products, or you're expediting too much. But one thing, one thing or another, and those are all win-win fixable. So then you can send a team into those customers and say, look, you know, we have two choices. You know, we can give you 75% of what you want. Or if you'll order once a week, we can give you 100% because you'll not be a peak. Mm -hmm. And that allows you to shift a whole group of big customers from money losing to money producing, profit producing. So it's a wonderful incentive. And if you don't want to do it, you know, your choice. But Mm -hmm. We, we can't give you the product. For your desert customers, the small ones, say they get 60%. And you know the issue there is typically that there are so many that you don't know really what's going on, but with social media, you can sort of probe them and tell. But in aggregate, the strategy of dealing with the small customers that are not growable into big customers. Some may be a big customer taking the taste, particularly if you're, you have a little bit of supply and their primary vendor doesn't have it. Then, then they'll come and say, hey, you know, can you help us out? And the salesperson will say, you wouldn't believe this. Boeing came, knocked on my door, you know, give them everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, say, you know, great, it was a contract. And then we'll, you know, make you a profit peak and, you know, you're entitled to all the other benefits that an Eagle Scout gets. So, um, but basically you want to deal with your profit rate, your profit deserts by lowering your cost to serve. And that's where your digital transformation will take place, by the way. So for your profit peaks, you want a multi-capability team that does nothing but profit peak, but growing profit peaks. In fact, I'm writing an article right now called How to Make Your Best Customers Even Better. We talk about how to take a great customer and make them really great. You know, for your drains, you want another team, and all they do is turn around these problematic too costly accounts. And for the deserts, you want to automate everything. Take all the people out of the system. But maybe they get 60% if they're not growable. Or if they are growable and they don't sign the contract, they get 60%, but they can take that to the bank. So the really deep question when you have this supply blockage, and most people think when you have a supply blockage, how do I get alternative supply? How do I get more resilience? How do I build up inventory? To me, the real question is how do you deal with your customers? Because if you make a lot of promises and you don't keep them, they're not going to be very happy. But if you make a promise, even if it's not quite what they want, but you deliver 100% of the time, 
they will be loyal and they'll understand. So I think that in this extended drought period, that was really the hard choice that people had to make. So now what's happening? Well, you know, take away the ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal that was, right. you know, as they say, it's a force majeure, you know, till the wind to stop blowing. So that was, you know, and then you've got a limited capacity in the ports, particularly on the West Coast, because ecologically you can't dredge beyond what you currently have. You can do that in the Gulf, less so in the East Coast. You can move some stuff through the Panama Canal to the East Coast ports where there's more capacity than the Gulf ports. But the problem is that the Panama Canal only takes, I think, 90,000 deadweight ton vessels, not the Suez Canal. Mm -hmm. So there's a limit to how big the ship is. So you're kind of stuck. And so you have a supply chain, including a port that's tuned for a level amount of product, the lean product flow, plus or minus 10% variance. And all of a sudden you've got a supply chain where for a year, nobody had inventory. Mm -hmm. Why would you pay for inventory when there's no demand? And then along comes vaccination, along comes all the other stuff. And along comes all the optimism and exuberance. That's a different conversation to have. Mm -hmm. And now everybody says, my God, you know, we're going to have a million customers. Go get a ton of product. Yeah. And it's sort of like the python that swallowed the pig. Mm -hmm. Pardon my analogy, my metaphor. But, you know, you, you can't. Number one, the suppliers don't have it because they're lean. Number two, you can't get it through these constraint, you know, capacity constrained ports. And number three, everybody's trying to hoard. And the customers are hoarding. So the more the customers hoard, the more your replenishment system says, wow, we have this astonishing 3x three, three demand. And actually, um, Mike Kaufman, who runs the CEO of Cardinal, was quoted a couple of days ago as saying that in the early days of the pandemic, the PPE, personal protective equipment, that Cardinal produces, the demand for that was 12 times historical average yeah. because everybody wanted to hoard it. Yeah. And so you've got this massive hoarding coming on with some constrained capacity. And, you know, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal start writing articles about, well, with me, the supply chain doesn't work. Let's not be lean anymore. Right. You know, when the well, real question is, you know, how do we get over this hump? Because once we get over it and the thing stabilizes, the next question will be, why do we have all this inventory? So, you know, the way to avoid it is to, you know, put people on allocation mm -hmm. to understand what your constraints are and not to allow hoarding. And then you still have a problem that people have to build their inventory, but they can build it as demand increases, the inventory will build, but only to the point where it's supporting your so-called cycle stock, mm -hmm. which is what you need basically to replenish. And then maybe a little extra just to be safe. So I think that that's the, the, the underlying problem. Yeah. So, I mean, we go back to the, the demand spikes at the beginning of the pandemic. 
there was an increased usage, like legitimate usage. And then I think on top of that, there was the the hoarding. We we, we don't know how much more we're going to need. So let's over order um, in, in your article. The one thing you talk about is a way of maybe managing that variance is is the role of communication of like picking up the phone and having a conversation about how many are you actually using? What might be part of that? That's not an automated computer system interface. That's that's sometimes just human-to-human contact, even in modern times, right? That's right. But you don't have to do it with all the customers. Only your really big ones. And only your big, really big profitable ones that you're going to support no matter what. And then you favor them with full allocations. So that's, you know, the way that you handle it. But the basic issue is that once this is over, in the case of PPE, once it's over, you'll be back to lean again, wondering why you have all this inventory. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to take another three or four months to draw that down. While you're drawing it down, you're not ordering anymore. And so the vendors say, my God, you know, there's no demand, you know, shut the factory line. And then all of a sudden it starts again and they don't have product to send you. And then, you know, see so hoarding it. They, they, they may have, they may have laid people off. They may have shut down. Exactly. The factory so we, you know, and their suppliers have the same thing. It's called the bullwhip effect right. where, you know, you have increasing variance, increasing amplitude as you go farther and farther from the point of demand. Right. And all of that can be avoided by keying everything on the ultimate consumption, which is really the key in coordinating the supply chain. Mm-hmm. But before you do that, you've got to have communication and channel partners who work with each other and don't they don't fight and not adversaries. So I see this as this, what's coming is a series of shockwaves where You'll have hoarding, a drawdown, no product, can't get it, hoard again. And it'll just kind of, you know, winnow probably for a year or two. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, in the case of PPE and medical products, um, the smart thing, the right thing to do is what the government started doing under, uh, I think it was George W. Bush, if I'm not mistaken. This isn't a political statement. Mm -hmm. I have no public political stance. But um, they established basically a, an insurance reserve of medical products. Right. You know, and then reserves. subsequently people didn't keep it up. They let it go bad, mm-hmm. you know, so that it wasn't at all useful. But that's where the bulge in demand should have come, should have been satisfied. So you can run lean and the government basically acts as an insurer. You know, but we all know that people don't buy insurance until the day after the flood. So that's, you know, that's the issue. Now, in the car companies, um, what they could do is take a look at their input products along two dimensions. One is how likely is it that we're going to be closed out of it? You know, is this coming in from Asia and it's bulky and we can't fly it. It has to come by ship. And number two, how important is it for the automobile? You know, if it's something bulky and 
critically important, okay, you know, get a strategic reserve, but don't do it for everything. If you have something big and bulky flowing out of Arizona to South Carolina, you know, you're probably okay. And if it's unimportant, then you can substitute, you know, something else to that. So I think it's a matter of, you know, really parsing it and taking, parsing it apart and understanding where you want to carry your safety stock. That's sort of the just in case and where you want to run lean. So to, to the point on lean, um, you know, in, in your article, you define lean and just in time, I, th- I thought, far better than the Wall Street Journal typically has. The Wall Street Journal thinks just in time means low inventory and shipments from China. You defined lean, um, you know, using this phrase you touched on earlier, compressing cycle time. And, and, I, and I think that's really key. So when we look at lean as a system, how does Toyota accomplish just in time? They have very stable um, they, products. They have annual year cycles and the product doesn't really change that much from year to year. So it's, you know, multi-year products. They intentionally level load production, which minimizes the variation back to suppliers and those suppliers. And if you look at Toyota in Japan or Toyota in San Antonio, Texas, they have very local, if not on-site suppliers. So like to me, that, to your point, minimizes some of that variance in um, in uh, demand on the suppliers, variation, uh, reducing variance on shipment reliability. And that, that, that all together allows them to have a just-in-time system where I think of, let's say, for example, Apple, like I almost spit my coffee out when the Wall Street Journal said Apple was an example of just in time, because I think of Apple has huge spikes in demand on new products. They're they're shipping or flying uh, product from China. Like it's just it seems like it's a completely different business model and a completely different supply chain model. It's completely different. Um, and in fact, uh at MIT, our best students go to you know, McKinsey, BCG, or Apple, or Amazon. And at Apple, they do what's called SNOP, Sales and Operations Planning, which is managing the synchronizing supply and demand on a long-term and short-term basis. You know, the other part of, of just-in-time, though, I mean, I teach a case on this, is that it goes much deeper. Um, in Japan, they have um, uh, very tight and very long-term relationships with their suppliers. So it's called mutual co-destiny. I don't know the Japanese word with the kurutsu. And basically, they will give them the certainty to invest in getting their costs down, invest in getting faster. And... You know, when you're running a, a supply chain where every year or two the suppliers are fighting over who gets your contract, they're not going to invest, you know, in, in a system improvement that may take three or four years to pay off or five years to pay off. And so it's a really very different way of thinking about a business. But in some senses, it's anathema to, you know, what you, what one would think of as a classic capital 
capitalist model where you've got, you know, competing suppliers and the cost gets down. You know, what they forget is that unlike wheat farmers in Adam Smith, <laughs> you know, they have facilities that have to be, that are long lived. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so a good just-in-time system is really quasi-vertical integration. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, coordination across multiple mutually dependent organizations. And if you look at how, um, you know, an automaker, Toyota, or, you know, or others who have emulated Toyota would manage their supply chain, you know, you have local suppliers and you can treat them one way. Um, and then there are always the exceptions of like the very specialized components that are only produced in one factory in Japan. And that one factory sells to all the automakers. And then there's an earthquake or a fire or something you know, I, you know, a smart automaker would be holding inventory to protect against that supply chain risk and the not just the normal variation of shipping delays or port strikes. Um, and in these articles talk about now because, you know, of chip shortages or resin shortages that, um, you know, oh, Toyota's holding more inventory. I'm like, well, I don't know if that's really a change in strategy. If they've identified a new risk, they're going to hold more inventory. I don't think that's a change in the playbook at all. But the headline sort of, you know, uh, decla- you know the Wall Street Journal has declared, prematurely declared the, ju- the death of just in time. Um, what's the old story about, um, thing about, uh, you know, they, they used Mark, to report Mark, that. The, the reports of my death are <laughs> premature. Yeah. The reports yeah. of just in times uh, demise are premature. Thank you for filling in. <laughs> I always think of I always think of Mark Twain who said, "You don't like the weather in New England. Wait a minute." <laughs> right. Um, but when we talk about what what's happening or what what's going to happen as as we come out of um, what I hear you saying is that you know with the pandemic in a lot of cases there was depressed demand for many items because of economic conditions. There may have also been um, supply constraints where factories are shut down for health reasons or it's hard to get employees. And now as the floodgates open back up, that creates new challenges. And and, and thinking back to the bullwhip effect, maybe you can elaborate a little bit. You know, at MIT, we play the beer game. And in true MIT style, they don't allow us to drink beer while we're playing that tabletop simulation game. But one of the lessons from the beer game is learning to not overreact. If there's a, if there's a blip in demand, that doesn't mean it's a trend. And I was wondering if you could talk about strategies that, that companies could use when they, when they see, let's say there's pent up demand and there's now a blip. Actually the beer game, which is now called the root beer game so that they can play it in the middle East. Okay. Okay. But the, the beer game you know, which, which as, as you described, um, you have teams of people, you know, with demand signals going to, like, say, a distributor, going to a brewery, going to, you know, and so on. And these signals get more and more amplified. Like, oh, my God, you know, it's going up. Get a lot of it. Oh, my God, it's going down. Get a lot of Get rid of it all. You know, it's kind of human nature. Mm-hmm. They played it all over the world with a lot of different groups. Do you know what group had far and away the best performance? 
Oh, I hate to hazard a guess. Who? What? What group? Elementary school kids in China. Wow. Because they were they were very literal. It went up up a little. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> no second guessing. And uh, you know th- what I worry about now, and you know, chalk it up to my my new, my New England, my multi generation New England roots. Um, you know, in New England, we wear suspenders and a belt. Yeah, we're pretty, pretty careful people. And, uh, you know, I'm not convinced that the current exuberance from being released from, you know, being, from pent up, being pent up is going to be a long-term trend. Mm-hmm. I think that from in a, in a deeper perspective, you have had tens of millions of people unemployed for a year or more, tens of millions. And, you know, with no savings before this pandemic, people had spent down their credit, they had credit card debt, they spent down their savings, they ate into their home equity, they had, they didn't have money for retirement and lay on top of that a year of no work. You know, because all the run-up in income came from the top 1%. You know, basically speculating on the exuberance. Mm -hmm. And um, I worry more deeply that, yes, everybody finally got a vaccination and, you know, they went out to lunch, went out to dinner. They bought a car. They good times are here again. Mm -hmm. Um, I worry about the fundamentals taking root you know and i see i saw in the paper this morning that in the journal <coughs> excuse me that you know business earnings are at an all-time high well they are but look what's going on you know is this is this how long will it last and so you know i i guess i i wouldn't bet the farm on this but if you do have stock, it's probably not a good time to sell. You know, I'd wait until uh, they get a little more exuberant. And then because once they fall off the cliff, it'll go down as fast as it went up. And and so is the risk, um, it seems like maybe uh, to, to companies or risk the economy, The is, is, is how would you describe the risk of a company overreacting, over extrapolating as they might when they're playing the root beer game? Um, does that mean, you know, glutts of inventory, depressed profits? Well, I, I think that companies are rebuilding their inventory. You know, they got rid of all the safety stock. There was no demand. And when you get rid of safety stock, you know, the first thing you do is you get rid of the slow movers. And you know, you keep your fast movers. And so the factory saw um, this crash in demand for slow movers. And so they produced a lot of fast movers, you know, but now that you're getting, you're, you're replenishing, you're replenishing primarily your slow moving inventory and not the, you know, fast flow through. So the big signal that goes back up the supply chain to the factories is, you know, stop production of fast movers and 
make a lot of slow movers. So that's <coughs> going to go down and fill the supply chain with slow movers. And then there'll be a shortage of fast movers. And that's really, that's going to be death for the companies because that's where they make all their money. You know, and the, the whole thing is out of balance. And again, it'll take, I think, two or three cycles, maybe a half a year to a year or more to get back in balance. So the sh- it takes a while for those shock waves to, to calm down. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then, you, you know, you have the deeper question about, um, you know, politically, whether the bills that are up before the Congress um, for infrastructure and for, you know, family support um, are going to get passed because if they do, then that could really raise the underlying demand. You know, the first of the three bills basically made people whole, but I think they didn't give them a whole lot more. You know, the infrastructure bill will inflate jobs. I don't mean inflate in a bad way. It'll increase jobs and, you know, provide more support. And the one after that will support the workers. And that's what could really reverse things and pull us out of this quagmire that I think we're in. And again, that's I'm I'm not a you know advocating a particular political view. That's sort of my analysis of what I think is happening. Right. The the effect on companies and supply chains, right? Right. Um, one one other dynamic uh, I was going to ask you about. You know, we think about the root beer game and you know the the, the wild swings. I, from, I have trouble with that term, by the way. Yeah, uh, I'm a, I'm trying I'm adjusting to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the 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 wild swings from uh, massive shortages to then once these amplified waves of uh, you know extrapolated demand signals finally start coming through, then you end up with huge um, gluts of supply. You know, I think of going thinking a year ago how hard it was to buy hand sanitizer. Now I can go down to the local grocery store and I could buy a ton of it real cheap. Like they're selling it basically you know, three for the price of one and there's discount tags and um, a lot of, um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's more inventory than what's there on the shelf if there's such steep wow. discounts. I mean, is some of that sort of a natural beer game type effect? I think absolutely. I have a friend, former classmate from Columbia, who, um, you know, had, had an advertising and marketing company. And saw this demand for hand sanitizer and linked up with another person and ran factories. They started producing hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. And now he's desperate for somebody to take a truckload. Yeah. Can't, can't find it. You know, I think it's a matter of, uh, you know, I mean, you see it in so many places. It's human nature. You know, I mean, it's almost get rich quick. But, um, there's 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 a fine line because yeah there 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 was a demand and, and you know you'd say well the free market encourages people to step up now and create supply but then if 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 everyone's coming in um, you know uh, you know there, this happens in a lot of markets um, ten different companies all think they're going to have fifty percent market share yeah oops well that's right actually in economics there's a the term for it is called the uh, 
the cobweb effect, hmm. where demand in this period, the function of supply in the prior period. Hmm. So if supply was low in the prior period, price would go up. And therefore, you produce, you know, that creates a lot more demand than you, you know, produce to that. So um, it's, you know, sort of a well-known dynamic. And the question is whether you have short or long-term vision. Yeah. A good company, you know, will sort of see through it. On the other hand, it's very hard not to sell cars to people who are knocking on the door at the dealership. You know, so right. take what you get, you know, make hay when the sun shines, I guess is the expression. <laughs> sure. But the problem um, is that if you have to invest in order to do it, then you've got a lot of orphan capacity. And so it's really a longer term issue determined by short term conditions. Yeah, and that's really the issue. Yeah. Um. So I want to also touch on real quickly um, the new book, because I think a lot of people in the audience um, will, will find the book interesting and useful. You, you've shared some concepts already. Um, at, you know, we talk about different types of customers and you cover this in that article on supply chain shockwaves. Uh, again, the book is Choose Your Customer, How to Compete Against the Digital Giants and Thrive. Like, I mean, in, in your mind, who, who is the, the ideal or typical reader for the book? I think people running businesses, you know, more often than I can, I can name, that I can cite, people ask me um, what's going on and what can I do about it? You know, Amazon is trip, what, tripling its sales and it's coming from somewhere. And they're saying, how can I compete with it? Amazon's taking, you know, 20% of my customers. My God, what am I going to do? And what they don't step back and think about is that Amazon does only one thing well, just one. They're taking away their web services and some of the other sorts of things. But in the retail side, you know, run by for a long time, Jeff Wilkie, who was for your program. Right. Yeah. Um, he just retired from Amazon. Just retired, yeah. Good, really good guy. Um, but basically, they sell arm's length to small customers in an information-rich environment with network effects. They don't supply hospitals. They don't go onto the factory floor. They don't do customization. They don't do so-called postponement finishing products. They do one thing, I want a book. And I think they got into this really by accident because the way they got into the, Bezos got into the book business was because he tried to think of something, you know, where there was an opening and that is, you know, you can't put enough inventory in a bookstore mm -hmm. and half of it goes obsolete. You know, people don't buy it. So he mm -hmm. said, okay, you know, I can, keep a huge inventory and send it out over the internet. But they had the brilliance to you know, see that they had picked out a way of doing business, a strategy that really important, all of the other companies had ignored. 
I mean, for all the other, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, if you had said, who's your best customer? The answer would have been my big one. Hmm. You know, they went after the thousands, the long tail, the thousands of customers that nobody wanted. And then they turned it into a science with automated warehouses and, you know, artificial intelligence and everything else. But they took a segment that nobody wanted and nobody innovated. And it was just really an unmanageable pain in the neck and took it. Mm-hmm. Good news is that that leaves a wide open playing field in a lot of other very, very defensible high value strategies. You know, and it's not only for big businesses that can, you know, deliver to the factory floor board. Baxter to the factory floor of a to the floor of a hospital, but you know even local corner businesses that are doing some customization, specializing in, you know if you're going to sell books, sell esoteric books, you know, whatever they are, mm-hmm. you know if you're selling shoes, specialize in fitting athletes. Amazon's not going to go to your house and measure your feet. Right. Right. You know, there, there are a lot of places where you can combine um, products with services and move to the higher service. And by the way, people will pay more for that. People will pay more. So people very often ask me, how do I compete with Amazon? And my answer is, <laughs> don't. You're going to get run over. You know, I, I can't think of many companies, maybe Alibaba, but you know, very few companies can compete head on with Amazon or Apple. Yeah. Well, you're saying don't compete Amazon. head on. Don't don't try to out Amazon, Amazon. Yeah. What you want to do is you want to not be like Amazon. You want to do what Amazon did and pick out a defensible piece of the market and make that your life. And you do that three ways. Number one, pick out the customers that fit that and say no to the ones that don't. Mm-hmm. Number two, focus your resources so that that's all you do. And you get better and better and better at it the way that Amazon did. Amazon's a great case example. And number three, form your organization so that that's what it accomplishes. And so I think that's the moral of the story. Interestingly, uh, about a week and a half ago, I was asked to do... um, a webinar to be a, a speaker in a, in a conference by CEO magazine on the future of healthcare. It's called the Healthcare Growth Summit. And, you know, it was very clear to me that hospitals that are multi-purpose, all-purpose players are going to get torn apart by specialists in telehealth, specialists in wellness management, specialists in replacing knees, locally, which is kind of a standard procedure. And, you know, the big academic centers that, you know, God bless them, do take care of people who need that kind of care. Mm -hmm. You know, but the same way that when I was a kid growing up in Hartford, we shopped at G. Fox and Company, you know, a five-story department store. I bought my shoes. I bought my skis. I (laughs) bought my parka. You know, go to G. Fox doesn't exist, you know, and it's part Amazon, part North Face, part Patagonia, part L.L. Bean, you know, on and on and on. So what we have in the market is is a fragmentation. 
It started with the internet that allowed providers to identify the needs of different segments of the market and focus on filling them correctly. So that's, that's what the book is about. And so it applies to somebody starting a business. It applies to a small business selling cupcakes in the corner. Mm-hmm. It applies to a growth business and it applies to any business. And the people who come and say, you know, what am I going to do, Amazon? Yeah, I'm afraid they're going to take 10% of my customers. The answer is, well, I mean, you have to say it very politely, you know, maybe that's the wrong 10%. You know, maybe you should get 10% that fit where you're making money. Right. And, you know, build your business where you're going to have long-term defensible for high profit growth. And I'm here to say that Amazon segment is a very minor segment. And they got that segment because everybody went to sleep mm-hmm. on the wheel for that segment. Reminds me, years ago, um, I did the merger of New York and New England Telephone into 9X. Mm-hmm. And um, I spent a lot of time you know, with the New York people and the New England people. And um, was we had an executive committee meeting in New York. Um, and one of the questions that came up was, okay, who are our best customers? And, you know, everybody said, you know, we'll chase Manhattan Bank and, you know, Skaden Arps and, you know, whoever else is around there. And the head of strategy was a guy named Bailey Geeson, very, very smart person, really good guy. Uh, Coast Guard Academy graduate, actually, with an MBA. And he said, no, our best customer, our best customers are, Teenage girls in Queens and Long Island talking all night on the phone with minutes of use. Yeah. That's where all our cash flow comes from. Mm. They don't bargain. They just use the services. They always pay their bills. Go to Chase Manhattan Bank and they're all over you negotiating the price and give us this and give us that. And they said, that's that's our bread and butter. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, know your, know your customer. And, and oh, yeah, know yeah. how they're different. And, and, and the book lays out the framework of, I, I think, as your story illustrates, the biggest comp- customers aren't always the most profitable customers, as you were saying earlier. It's, it's the, the cost of providing service and um, the, the amount of handholding or high touch that might be required. It's an interesting thing to think through as, you know, I think it would apply to software, co- uh, software companies, consulting firms. Um, you know, I won't add, you know, you, you, you could apply that same thought to, to your software company, perhaps. So I won't ask you for specifics about that, of course. But I would imagine that, that you have a, a chance to apply your own methodology. Well, I, I would say that, that probably our biggest opportunity is selling to big consulting companies that need to figure out where a client is making money and where they're not. Mm-hmm. And we can do it fully installed in two weeks and lay out every single inch of the company. And it takes a consulting company two months of a team working in Tableau to, you know, to get 60% or 70% of it. You know, but I would say what's important, and I'm actually writing an article right now. Um, it's called How to Make Your Best Customers Even Better. Mm-hmm. And basically, you can go into your big customers 
But if you go in with no ideas, then you're going to have a negotiation. What you want to do is go in, and I describe this also in the book, and understand how to create value where there formerly was not any value. And I cite the example of Baxter. It's something I was involved in back, I think, when you were in school, back in the 80s. And um, in the 90s, well, when your father was in school (laughs) or your grandfather. Uh, But basically, we created a business called Vendor Managed Inventory, where we would go in and um, manage the inventory within the customer and, you know, do the counting and do the putting away. And we had 30% cost reduction in the the hospitals, 20% cost reduction in Baxter. And sales went up by 35%. And that was an enormous win. And all the customers came to us and said, I want one too. Big customers. What was really important though, was that that was the beginning of remote clinics and surgery centers. Mm-hmm. And the hospitals wanted to set these up, but they didn't trust their supply chain. Mm-hmm. When they got the partnership with Baxter, they could do it. And so the ultimate win was not only reducing the cost of the hospital, but changing the paradigm of how they operated and what their strategy was. And that's why I would say that for the big customers, if you're not bringing that kind of innovation to the table, and in the book we describe how to do that through a showcase project and learn by doing, it's a methodology to do that sort of thing. But, you know, when you bring that, you can have your cake and eat it too. Your prices go way up. Your best customers are not price sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and if all you're doing is asking for, you know, can I have some more money? The answer would be, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. You know, ask again later. Yeah. So it's a matter of being innovative one way or the other. Um, a really smart businessman named Sid Jacobson started a company called MSC, it's now worth billions of dollars, said, if you're not moving forward, you're going back, you're falling backwards. And I think that's the moral of the story. And in the book, we explain how to pick out the right segments, how to do the customer focus, focus the resources and manage the company and create that value footprint that's always increasing. That to me is the key. Okay. Well, I hope people will go um, check out the book again. Uh, the title is Choose Your Customer, How to Compete Against the Digital Giants and Thrive. Um, the author is Dr. Jonathan Burns, who's been our guest today. Um, the software company, again, is Profit Isle, and you can f- learn more uh, about him and his consulting at jlburns.com. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's B-Y-R-N-E-S, Burns. Um, so thank you so much for um, sharing with us today and uh, really appreciate the chance to learn and, and think through these really important topics. Always a pleasure. And it's always a joy to talk with you, Mark. And again, I admire very much what you do and all the people I know are benefiting. And I also want to very much thank the people who are listening in. Um, I appreciate your interest. And uh, I hope that, you know, as a teacher, I really hope that this could be of help to you. Yeah. So thank you very much. And, uh, it's wonderful to see a loyal, successful alumnus. Oh, well, thanks. Thank you. <laughs>
Well, thanks again to Professor Burns for joining us today. Uh, again, for links to his book and the articles and things we've mentioned here, you can go to leanblog.org slash 412. Please follow, rate, and review. And again, please consider sharing the episode or the podcast with others. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.